My name is Alyssa Robinson, and you're listening to the Treach Podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Monique Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a mental health counselor who has been practicing for 20 years. Her specialties are adult survivors of sexual trauma, couples recovery from affairs, PTSD, and bipolar disorder. She and I have a great conversation around the evolution of mental health care over her career, tools to seek help, and she helps me see a few things differently, like how to support a loved one who's struggling. Dr. Thompson's faith informs everything she does, and she definitely sees a spiritual connection to mental wellness. This episode is just the beginning of all of the mental health resources and conversations we're hosting in May. You can learn more at tmumc.org wellness. Dr. Thompson, to get us started, first, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better and understand why you decided to work in the mental health field. Okay. Um, well, when I was in high school, my mother was very strict about education, and I had been in extra science and math courses since about the seventh grade. So when I got to high school, I um, didn't have very many classes left to take because I'd also taken AP English and lots of extra coursework. But she insisted that I find some classes. So I took AP Sociology and AP Psychology. And at that time, um, my counselor had a grant to do peer counselor training. And she, I was one of the students that she selected. So I actually started in the field when I was still in high school. And I simply never left. So when you first started, it was based on this grant and you were like, you know what, I'm going to take advantage of it and see where it goes. Did you just immediately fall in love with it or, or did it grow on you over time? Well, I was really good at it. So one, the, co- the coursework was very easy and I, I had rigorous classes, but I, I did very well on them. And I was very um, instinctive in my work as a peer counselor. We delivered the Just Say No and Dare programs. We had an elementary school down the street from my high school. And we went there to do groups with the kids. And I just was very good at what I did. When I finished undergraduate school, I I majored in psychology. I was actually in a management training program. And during that summer, after undergraduate school, I spent almost every day in quiet study, praying, and thinking and journaling and figuring out what to do next. And in the end, my decision to go ahead and go to graduate school was because although I was doing fine and doing very well in the management training program, I, I had a lot of conversations with God. And I talked to him about what we what I needed to do next. I heard clearly from him on what to do. And in the end, that was what made me go ahead and go into the field. Oh, wow. So it was really your, your faith your spirituality, conversations with God that led you into this work. And so I just, I feel like the obvious answer to this next question is yes. But uh, so do you feel that the church has a role in the mental health conversation? And what would that role be? Well, the mental health conversation is very wide and deep and long reaching. So there's not really any aspect of our lives that cannot intersect our mental health simply because your interaction with the world involves every part of your very being. So extrapolating the church from your mental health um, is, I think it probably could be done, 
but I don't think it is a reality of being done. It's sort of, if I pretend that it's not there, then does that really mean it's not there? When in fact, um, most people have some kind of faith base, whether it is um, a traditional faith base or not. In my work, although I am a Christian counselor, I'm respectful of absolutely positively every single person's walk of faith, wherever that is, and whatever religion or non-religion that is. And I mean every type of faith. Obviously, you know, to me, that makes me feel like the church needs to be a part of these conversations and welcoming and accepting people and letting them come just as they are with whatever it is that they're dealing with, uh, whether they feel like they can handle it on their own or they need help overcoming something that's going on in their lives. Where do you think that the church has gotten these conversations around mental health and mental wellness right? And where have we gotten it wrong? We've gotten it right by saying that um, people are coming as they are because that's just true. We've gotten it wrong when we ignore the biological basis of the brain as an organ. Um, so I'm going to give an example here. Um, if we take your teeth as an easy example, um, you need dental care, right? So we expect people to brush their teeth as preventative care. But then if you need a root canal, then anybody who's ever had that kind of pain knows that there is no substitute for getting a medical remedy. Similarly, the brain is the organ that's affected by your mental health. And preventative care can mean many things, including having some kind of faith relationship. But when the brain is sick or when it is ill, it requires medical intervention. And so that's where we lost the weight sometimes, but I do see a lot of growth in the faith community with acknowledging the brain as an organ and that the brain as an organ requires medical care and attention, just like every other organ in the body. Right, and that's exactly what we're trying to stay away from in this churchwide focus is we're not claiming, hey, pray harder and, and God will, you know, make your depression go away. We're not claiming anything like that. What we're trying to provide is a start to this conversation and hoping that we can direct you to a resource where you can start to get the help you need because we understand uh, with anything clinical, you know, you're not going to come to the church with a broken arm and pray that your arm heals. You're going to go to the doctor <laughs> and you can have the prayers on top of that. But I, I think that when we start to treat mental health care the same way that we treat physical health care, uh, we'll see big changes in the church and the faith conversation that's happening. Correct, correct, correct. So how have you seen the mental health climate shift over the past decade or even longer? Because you've been doing this, like you said, since you were in high school. What major trends and changes have you seen that have gotten us to where we are today? Well, we've had some advances in science, but we also had some advances in research and connectivity between the behavioral health community. Um, in, after the Gulf War, 
the um, government spent, well, the Department of Defense spent a great deal of money researching evidence-based practices for post-traumatic stress disorder to better help our servicemen and women. And they've done an excellent job. So now if you were to um, want to access technology, for example, to allow you to um, aid yourself, if you have symptoms of PTSD, there's a PTSD coach app that's free download for anyone, not just our military men and women, that is an evidence-based um, solution for people to take care of themselves while waiting for help and get support in addition to whatever medical and therapeutic interventions they're receiving. So that's one example of a major step we've taken in the last decade or so, but it has a lot to do with the integration of technology and with the integration of the health community being able to communicate better. So also within the last couple of decades, we've had a burst of information technology that all of us can access now. So for myself as a behavioral health scientist, I can communicate directly with other behavioral health scientists around the world, and I do. Um, so once upon a time, you'd have to wait on a conference to come to you or be close by that you could travel to, go to the conference, listen to people talk about their research, wait for something to be published. So there was this wait time for knowledge. There is no black hole of knowledge anymore. You can communicate directly with the people who are doing research and who are leading the way, and you don't need to leave your practice to access the current trends and the current information that we have. So there is no excuse anymore for not using what we know today for treatment plans. So for example, if somebody is seeking care and they're not sure if they have depression or anxiety or is it burnout or loneliness or stress, like what is going on with me? There are any number of evidence-based tools that you can use for self-screening, like what's my M3 or going to depression.org to do just a screening that will give you some level of feedback. When you are able to differentiate if something's wrong or not, then you can say, well, I think I want to talk to somebody. Well, most people's insurance plans now um, include coverage for behavioral health care because parity laws changed back in the late 90s, requiring your insurance plan to cover you the same in your behavioral health care plan as in your medical plan. Well, telemedicine laws have recently changed so that you just need someone who's licensed in your state. So you can reach out to someone outside of your zip code, outside of your normal commute and get access to care because of telemedicine. So those telemedicine peri laws changed within the last couple of decades. And so the access to treatment that there was a barrier before in the last decade where you'd have to have someone in your health plan, have the equal coverage, be able to get there. All those things have flattened out now. And so some barriers to treatment have been dissolved. Access to a preferred provider, meaning you might want to see a person who meets certain criteria to make them comfortable as a therapist for you. It is as simple as an Internet search and as simple as a phone call to your insurance at this point. And with telemedicine, it is as simple as picking up your phone or your laptop or your device and connecting with the provider. And as a result of all of this, have you also seen a shift in uh, the social and cultural uh, views around mental health, do you find that more and more willing to talk about it as a society or is there still this stigma around it? I think the stigma will always be there um, because you, as a human, you're hardwired to survive and thrive. So anytime you sense something is wrong with yourself, it 
creates an alarm, a stress response, which tells you I need to do something. And you have this question, well, what's wrong with me? Um, so always that question is part of our humanity. And certainly, you know, we as human beings, and in particular, I'll say as Americanized approach is kind of independent of others. So those traits, you know, being human and not wanting to die um, and being kind of culturally driven to be independent, then the stigma is likely to continue in countries where there's a lot of focus on being, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But I think mm -hmm. we can see a change in the conversation and the openness to talk about things. And now what we need more than anything is like what you guys are doing right now, podcasts, I'm using YouTube, using the various social media challenges to pull, pull people in who are experts and professionals to give expert, you know, dialogue as the contribution to the communication versus just a community of people talking and you don't, you don't have an expert voice in there. So the conclusions are going to be um, less robust and less accurate. Well, and turning to a professional, that is intimidating for a lot of people. Uh, they're scared to try and find a therapist. Could you give us just an overview to kind of take the fear out of it, make it a little less scary? What should a person expect when starting therapy? What can they expect to happen in that first session? Um, expect that you'll be nervous and vulnerable and scared and that in this day and age, your therapist should be trained to help you to create a working alliance quickly so that you can get beyond being nervous and scared. Um, but you like what are some things that tell you maybe the therapeutic relationship is not a good one? Maybe it's a bad one. Um, you after a um, healthy number of sessions, which I probably should acknowledge that depending on what you are being treated for, um, a healthy number of sessions is based on what you're there to be treated for. And I'm going to use that dental example again. If all you were going to the dentist to do was have your teeth cleaned, you should be in and out and back at home within a couple of hours based on the wait time at the office and just going in to get that done. But if you went in for extractions, you might not be going back to work that day because of what you went in to get done. Similarly, when it comes to mental health treatment, a bad therapist has not figured out what's wrong with you, does not have a treatment plan. And that's it. If you have a good therapist, that therapist has figured out what's wrong and has a treatment plan to fix whatever is wrong. But what if there's nothing wrong? If you're just going to get life better or improve quality of life? Well, then now you want to use your subjective experience to say, well, am I getting helped here to get my life better? And it's such a subjective thought that you might want to process that with your therapist and see if you're if you have a comfort zone with being transparent in that way. And that would be an indicator of a good therapeutic relationship over a bad one is, am I getting better? And if nothing is clinically wrong, meaning I don't have a mental illness, is my life getting better? Well, and that is a lot of the feedback I've heard from people I've talked to who are dealing with not necessarily uh, clinical mental illness, but they're just going through a moment in life where they're 
they have an extra stress or or something where they're trying to recenter themselves and they're using therapy as a mode to do that but they oftentimes don't feel empowered to have that conversation with their therapist if they feel like it's not working. One person I talked to yesterday said that they just ghosted their therapist because it wasn't working. They didn't know what to do and they didn't feel empowered to have a conversation about it. So I want to know, as a therapist, as a good therapist, would it ever hurt your feelings if one of your clients said, hey, this isn't working for me. Can we figure something else out? No, it would not hurt my feelings. It would give me pause to consider um, how to take that report, meaning is the person wanting things to work out and this is their way of saying that, or are they actually want to discharge from treatment? The approach is to assume that they have both. So both a desire to stop and a desire to stay and honoring that they need to make the final decision, my approach to that is to say, why don't we pause and see what we wanna do, give it some time and honor their final decision. Therapy is for some, the person, the therapist is optional, but treatment is necessary. For others, the entire experience is optional. But back to that example of your teeth being clean versus you needing extractions. So for some, this is, well, I just need to get my teeth clean twice this year. So I don't have to go next month, but I do need to go by summer. You know, you're scheduling it at your convenience, but it is something that you want to get done. But all of your teeth are not going to fall out if you don't go for getting two cleanings in one year. The person who needs an extraction is trying to figure out how to get in this afternoon. And they need to get in quickly and the service needs to be remedied right away. So there's not really a blanket answer on how someone should go about ending therapy. But you want to look for within yourself, am I growing and being able to be honest with others, including my therapist? So typically what you are doing with your therapist, you are also doing outside of therapy. So it's not just that the therapist got ghosted. They're also likely doing this in other relationships. And now they've also done this to the therapist. So one of the things that happens in therapy is you correct and recover from broken social skills that you have outside the therapeutic relationship. So one of the social skills that you want to correct for is being able to be authentic with other people and not so much ghost. You know, that can, that's something you want to work on. Well, and I think um, part of it also comes from self-awareness and, and understanding yourself, which my understanding is that also takes a lot of work. And many of the people that I've talked to who suffer from depression or anxiety or even just chronic stress, um, they said that their loved ones noticed it before they did. And so for those of us who maybe we aren't personally struggling with uh, these mental illnesses or even just, you know, a dip in our mental health, how can we best approach conversations with the people we love about getting help when we start to see those warning signs? Um, well, so I'm going to talk about the warning signs you want to do something about and the things that, uh, as respectfully as I can say, you just mind your own business. Um, if a person is thinking about or talking about death and dying, harming themselves or someone else, 
or has disconnected from reality, meaning they see and hear things that are not there, or they have delusions, meaning they believe things that are not are simply untrue. Um, those are times when you want to intervene, and the first step can easily be just a trip to a regular doctor, just a family doctor, PCP, just a routine visit. There's a number of medical conditions that mimic mental illness, and your first stop can easily just be to your family doctor. When you're going to the family doctor with that person and you can encourage them to be transparent about what you're seeing, then that can help to get things started, all right? But let's say that it's something less obvious. Maybe they have sleep issues or you're noticing irritability or you're noticing that they are causing um, harm to themselves and by way of losing jobs, having financial crisis, or they have significant addictions that are kind of on the uptick. In those cases, if this is an adult and you're in a relationship with them, your first step is actually to go get help for yourself. Interesting. I would have never thought that that was the answer. <laughs> That's the first step is for you to go somewhere because somehow you're getting pulled into what you believe is somebody else's problem. And possibly it is their problem, possibly it's not, but likely it is your problem that you're needing to unravel and unfold. Somehow you're thinking you have to rescue someone who may or may not need your rescue. And even if they need your support, not your rescue, but your support, you will likely need someone to support you so that you are offering support and not rescue. Wow, that that is very insightful. Um, because a lot of times we're just looking for the answer of, okay, how can I breach this conversation with this person? I'm nervous, I don't know how to talk to them. But you're basically like, just focus on yourself. Focus on yourself, figure out what's going on with you. Oh yeah, what am I ignoring about myself? that's making their problems such a big deal? What am I procrastinating dealing with in my own life where my convenient excuse to not deal with my life is to deal with yours? So so what about um, you as a, as a healthcare professional, what do you do to take care of your mental health and wellness? Um, well, I have always um, had a belief that you should do everything you want to do still being responsible, but you should do everything you want to do. So I do everything I want to do. I teach water aerobics. Um, this afternoon, I'll be going to ride my bicycle over to a trail nearby to go for a little bit of a walk. Right now, I am sitting in my living room with a view of the lake, and that's where I like to sit. Um, so I, I believe in continuously adjusting your life toward what, you, what you'd like for it to be like. And you have to be disciplined and responsible and take care of things. But for the most part, do what you enjoy doing. Make, you know, make room for yourself in your own life. Don't take you out of your own equation. So I love what I do. I enjoy what I do all day long, all day long. I'm booked to the guilds and I enjoy what I do. So I don't, the art of what I do, I, I love. People get better. I've never lost anybody. And I, um, I believe that that's part of, there's not a burnout for me on this. I just do what I love to do. There are things that I do not treat. I'm good at that I do not treat because I do not enjoy doing them. So, um, and then there are things that I no longer do because I cannot be an effective therapist for certain populations um, because my lifestyle has changed. I used to do adult male sex offender treatment and after I had a child, I was no longer able to be an effective therapist with that group. So I don't do that anymore. Um, I have children, and so my hours have changed, and I see mostly adults. At one point, ninety percent of my practice was kids, 
I still do a lot with children. Um, my work is now in a nonprofit, the Zero Debt College Project, where I help students find scholarships um, for school and scholarship strategies. So I still work with children, but in a way that allows me to still be available to my own family. So I recommend anybody do that. Continuously move your life toward um, your, your, at some point, you've got to answer to God for your life. You got to say, well, well, the reason I didn't do that is because, well, go and say, well, I did the best I could with everything you gave me. Every minute you gave me, I twisted that minute out and I rang it out for everything, for the, all it was worth. I lived a good day every day as much as I could. Well, and it's, it's funny um, to hear you say, it feels so simple to say, well, just do what you want to do. Like, it's not yeah, as you notice pain and as you notice discomfort, try not to be so dismissive of it. You know, and I'm going to use that example even for the Zero Day College Project. That's a painful place for people. It's not they pay for college. Don't be dismissive of it. Figure out a strategy so that you can still pursue college, but without the pain of that debt. And so that's what we did. We came up with strategies so that we could avoid the pain of that debt, but still enjoy the aspect of going to college and getting a higher education. Well, and I wanted to talk to you about the Zero Debt College Project as well, because I know this is a nonprofit that you and your daughter started together. And uh, to me, whenever we're talking to people about like what really stresses you out, the number one answer is almost always going to be relationships or finance. Something is up with my relationships or with my money. Um, and so it almost seems like this nonprofit to you is also connected to mental wellness and being able to create a healthier lifestyle for your future. Can you tell me a little bit more about this nonprofit and how you, you came about doing this? Sure. Um, well, my daughter, Tamia Thompson, is the executive director now of the Zero Debt College Project. She was um, awarded over $10 million in merit scholarships, meaning these were not need-based scholarships. They were based on her being a student that they wanted to bring to the school because of her achievement. So she was accepted to over 150 or so colleges. Um, about a month or so ago, we were finally able to get a letter from her counselor at the school to kind of certify that all that's true, right? Um, I took a picture of it, I have it everywhere. <laughs> she has a box in her room where she saved all these letters with these awards. Um, but what originally happened is that we could not get these scholarships together for my nieces and nephews. We just could not figure out what we were doing wrong and so when my last niece went away to college and didn't get scholarships again, to me at that time I was about 10 years old. And I thought we have to figure something out because it cannot keep happening. And so the first thing I did as a therapist, I used what I know to do, which is create a game. She was a little kid. So I made up a game called a Scholarship Search Party. Our next step is our, in our nonprofit is to get that name trademarked and to get a mobile app game started because that game changes everything. It is a game that is a game changer. It's a fast paced time pressure game that immediately changes their mindset about college finances and literacy. And we um, we just kept playing with the game and getting it going. And so over from that time to now, we went from five little girls in my Girl Scout troop at that time in my office on a Saturday for about an hour playing that game. So now we have over 300 students, a Facebook group of over 4,000 people, um, and we continue to grow. But now we're in a place where we, you know, we're, hoping to just put everything we've learned, all these strategies in maybe a one or one or two books so that more people can have access to it because everything we learn, we share for free. In our Facebook group, the Zero Debt College Project, we literally on the regular share everything we've learned, every strategy we've learned for free. So 
over time, and she's 18 now, so think about that time frame. Over time, we've learned hundreds of strategies to help even people who think it's too late or people who are not first in their class or even average students learn strategies that they can use to get the scholarships to cover their college costs. Well, and it, it makes me think of what you said at the very beginning, which is everything is connected because what I'm hearing is they're getting these strategies to invest in their future, but you're also reducing stress by um, pulling it in in bite-sized pieces and it is making them feel confident and so it's helping with the way that they see themselves and it, it's just everything everything is interconnected and whether they realize it or not they're participating in a mental wellness exercise by doing all of this some of it is on mental health coping like they had a challenge two weeks ago to send me your favorite motivational quote and we you know kind of send them quotes to talk about and get back up like there's no end until you're until you're six feet under it's not over so just get back up. You, you, maybe you didn't get all the money you need for the fall. Do you have all the money you need for one class? Then get, get it together. Maybe take that one class this summer, get an A in that class. And now you do have a 4.0 on your college transcript. Now apply for some scholarships to see if you don't get some more money. There's always a way to get back up. And you have to kind of just believe that. That's the, inner, that's the place where the intersection of your faith and your effort impact your world. Where if your belief is, I can always get back up. Then it applies to your mental health, that's your spiritual health. And sometimes even in our work is that you cannot control every factor. And if you have something bigger than yourself working on your side, then you need to be a human that God looks at and, and is pleased with. Well, and it's the cornerstone of our faith is, you know, hope and love. That's, you know, that's what it comes down to. Exactly. I need to be Jacob that he loves, not Esau that he hates. I need to, if 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 I need to be Joshua one day, if I need to be Joshua one day, I need everything to stop so I can win this war. I need to be the kind of person that he looks at and says, "Oh, I need to stop everything so you can win the war." Okay, I got you. You know, if he's about to destroy the world, I need to be Noah. You want to be those people, and for your mental health and wellness. You even there, and there's no place in when there's no place in any disorder where the person is not part of their treatment plan. You bring something to your therapeutic experience, and part of what you bring is your own self awareness, your own choice to survive, your choice to thrive. You bring that. There's not a therapist that gives that to you. You bring that, and that's some of that intersection of the faith that you have that helps you to have that. That says that I can go on. I can stand back up. I can get better. I can do something about this. Now I'm David. I'm like, he was there with me when I needed to kill a bear. I needed to do this. And he is here with me now. So now you're David. Yeah, and it is it is nice to for those of us who have been through a few things to look back and see, you know, hey, you know, with God's help, I overcame that. What else you got? <laughs> you got? When I was younger with less, you know, when I was younger with less, because my, my, one of my specialties is adult survivors of sexual trauma. When I was younger with less, I survived that trauma. I got up, brushed my teeth, put my shoes on, and I went out the door to go to school. I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't have a bank account. 
I didn't have anybody to come rescue me. And I got up and I went to school the next day. And then I did the same thing the next day and the same thing. When I was younger with less, I got up and kept going. How dare I sit down when I have more and I have more power. I do have a bank account. I do have a graphic license now. How dare I sit down now? I owe my younger self a thank you. Thank you, little kid who has nothing but got up and did everything so that I could be here today. <laughs> well, Dr. Thompson, thank you so much once again for taking the time to talk with me and share your thoughts and your professional wisdom around where we've come from, how we've gotten here with the conversation around mental health and, and how we can be hopeful for the future. And I hope that this conversation inspires anyone who is listening and was thinking about taking that leap into therapy to just take that step, make a phone call and, and get on this path. Exactly. Thank you for having me. Big thanks to Dr. Thompson for helping us kick off our mental health conversations through the wisdom of a professional. And thank you for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to visit tmumc.org wellness to keep up with all resources and events during our mental health focus.